Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing by students in Lighthouse's workshops. The draft happens once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the draft 22.0 was Zombies, Ghosts, and Rock and Roll, and featured memoirist Susanna Donato, poet Jay Kenney, experimental forms writer Jennifer Wartman, and young adult novelist Mary Foley. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Um, People ask all the time, what is this whole draft business? And... You know, we use some of the military imagery and stuff in the on the sliders. That's not me. <laughs> but the idea of of the writing workshop is people submitting their work. Uh, you know, they're kind of submitting to a very humbling process, putting their work out there to a bunch of of fellow writers and and an instructor who try to take take them to the next place with their work and try to help them see things they don't see yet. Um, and I, I think it's a humbling experience, but I also think when it's done well, it's an inspiring experience. So the draft is really about bringing people's drafts here who are part of these workshops. There are usually 40 to 50 of these going on at a time. And we circulate ideas about what themes might be for the draft. And this time, the theme was really kind of haunting, but that sounded very October to me. So we changed it to, I think it was zombies, ghosts, and rock and roll, which is more spring. Um, So, I mean, obviously. So we circulate the topic and then different instructors. This is our way to get to hear some of what's going on in the workshops, which... I feel like is a real gift, um, and and it's free. It's a it's a free Saturday night thing to do, and it's always entertaining. So what I'm going to do is introduce the instructors, and they're going inter- to introduce the writer who's going to come up and read from a draft that they've been working on in these workshops. Um, the first one actually is somebody who who teaches for us from Minnesota online. Um, she used to teach here in Denver, and she moved away, and we, we couldn't let go. So um, Jessica Roeder, who's a beautiful writer herself and a great instructor, sent her her introduction for Jenny Wortman, who I've had the pleasure to have in my workshops, and she's just stunning as a person and as a writer. So she says... Jenny Wortman is one of the multi-talented writers in my online hybrid and unexpected forms class where we don't workshop, but we do read and write. Reading what the people in this class post each week is a little like watching fireworks, except that these fireworks aren't limited to chrysanthemums and salutes and willows, and they're often funny. It's also like teaching a dance class. I get to ask the writer to, to do something odd and challenging, and miraculously, they do. This week's challenge was, please start with a kernel of fact or memory, work with or alongside or around, this is where the hybrid experimental comes in, (laughs) that fact in three different ways of your choosing. 
This piece lit up the screen with its humanity, its humor, its precise language. It wrestles with difference and similarity, connection and coincidence, and of course, mortality. It speaks to form and survival and how what we need in order to write something can change in the process of writing and remembering. The dead are with us and terribly gone, especially somehow when they are writers. I wish I could have heard Jenny read this, as you will now. Jenny Wortman. Thank you. Um, I just want to say this piece has some parenthetical statements which seem to work well on the page, but when I read them out loud, not so much. So I tried restructuring the sentences, and that didn't work. So instead, I think, if I remember, I'm going to do air parentheses, and then you will know this is a parenthetical statement. All right. I call this, Is This Water? At a cocktail party the night before my father received for his retirement an honorary degree, I met David Foster Wallace. My mother deemed it urgent for David Foster Wallace to know that I would soon have my first story published in a certain review of little more than minor note. David Foster Wallace published his first novel at 25, Infinite Jest at 34, my age then. I reddened. He congratulated me and said that he'd made many failed attempts to publish his work in this certain review of little more than minor note. <laughs> Perhaps he'd been a toddler at the time of said rejections. <laughs> but I appreciated the gesture. Somehow we broke off into our own little talk. I understood that for some, this would be like breaking off into your own little talk with God. <laughs> but I hadn't yet read much of his work. Plus, I didn't view God as particularly likable. <laughs> and I liked this guy. I confessed I hadn't read Infinite Jest. He said, why does everyone feel the need to apologize for that? I praised his essay on television and fiction. Ugh, he said, that's really old. You know how those things you wrote long ago make you cringe? <laughs> Things I said two minutes ago make me cringe, was what I later wished I'd said. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was drinking water. He was still, he told me, writing the commencement speech he would give the next day. The speech would begin with a story about fish and water. Later, it would be published under the title, This is Water. I'm pretty sure the fish story and the speech title have nothing to do with him drinking water that night. But I like the idea of him drinking his speech. I also like the poignancy and simple strength that an addict drinking water at a cocktail party portrays. I'd also like to confess my complicated affection for addicts. And though an addict drinking water at a cocktail party is hardly a rebel yell, is perhaps its opposite. I'd like to share lines from this song written by an old acquaintance. In a parking lot, not parking. In a shopping mall, not shopping. We are coming to your town. We are coming to your town. Okay. I don't know if I read one before that section. I was supposed to. So that was section one. <laughs> 
This is section two. Jay had flown in for the weekend for her father's retirement. She thought she might be pregnant. She and her husband had just started trying. Now her period was officially late, and she felt weird. However, her period was often late, and she often felt weird. <laughs> more, so when she vis- excuse me, more so when she visited home. The night before, she'd met a famous writer. He talked about writing the commencement speech he would give the next day. And now, from the temporary perch of the outdoor days, he gave that speech, while she, on account of her dad, sat close, stage left. He read, looked up, read, looked up. His orations lacked flourish. They needed none. When he finished, everyone jumped to their feet. What they'd witnessed was not just a great speech, but something transcendent, greatness itself. They clapped hard, stinging their hands. They kept clapping. That speech, said her father, was about not being an elitist shit. Her mother thought the speech was about appreciating the little things in life. (laughs) To Jay... The speech articulated the totality of what she knew about the world but didn't know how to say, (laughs) though she too was a writer, an unfamous one. (laughs) The dumb certainties of ego, the banalities of adulthood, the saving grace of imagination, the demand for God. She wanted to tell the famous writer about his greatness. She'd keep it brief because she knew everyone else wanted to tell him too, and because she thought he probably wouldn't like it. On the days, the famous writer had reminded her of Kurt Cobain on Saturday Night Live years before. The way he stood quietly, shifting and distant after he'd smashed his guitar. The reticence that comes with deep expression. At the post-commencement luncheon for honorees, she and everyone else tried to catch the famous writer's eye. Had she not been married and possibly pregnant, who knows what she might have done. (laughs) He was exactly the kind of man who went for her. She wished. (laughs) Or exactly the kind of man she went for, except for her husband. They were never the same man. But then, mid-luncheon, mid some administrator's not-great speech, the famous writer darted from the room head down. She never saw him again. The next morning, she took the test, not pregnant. Three years later, she gave birth to her second child. The day after, the writer hanged himself dead. Three. I memorized the ceiling squares of the hospital room where I stayed for 11 days while my preterm son lay in the NICU. Someday I thought I'd write about him and you and I'd need these squares. But while I remember memorizing the squares, I don't remember the squares, except that they were white and obviously square and that when I looked at them, I felt sad. First, let me say, I'm well aware that your death is not my tragedy. Also, please don't mistake 
my attention for obsession. I don't truly believe we have a special connection, though on occasion I behave as if we do. Despite my best efforts, and by efforts I mean pushing really hard for three hours straight, my son was born on September 11th. Again, his birth falling on that day is no tragedy. Though as his doctor put it, by the time he came out, he was almost dead. Which due to the nurse's quick efforts and my post-labor haze, I hadn't known then. In retrospect, he looked pretty limp and gray. He's fine now, and in that sense, September 11th's a fine day. On the real September 11th, and by real, I mean that day we all know and remember. I'm embarrassed to say, because it seems self-absorbed and well unpatriotic. I was in the throes of a personal crisis, and by personal crisis, I mean severe depression. Much like yours in 89, but maybe not as bad if we can quantify severity. I think we can. For weeks, you were hospitalized, already having tried suicide, already having experienced some fame and its loss. You've been drinking heavily in front of your TV. I, in contrast, had neither tried suicide nor experienced lost fame. I didn't drink heavily in front of my TV, though I sometimes drank too much at parties, way too much. But during my personal crisis, I did not attend parties, so in that sense, I was safe. As an aside, I feel I should mention that on September 11th, though in the throes of a personal crisis, I briefly became sane. To my students, I said the kinds of things a sane person might say to students on that day. I graded lots of papers. I mourned and, f and feared what had happened instead of mourning and fearing myself. And then came September 12th. In your speech, this is water, you say, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. By my and I, you mean my and I, but also your and you, which for me means my and I. <laughs> In other words, me too. <laughs> Therefore, despite my best efforts, I don't know how to write about you without writing about me, which is sad, but also maybe, in a weird way, sweet. A year after my son's birth, another personal crisis descended. Like you, I'd gone off my meds, but for different reasons, pregnancy, nursing. It didn't end well, although, as you well know, it could have been worse. Still, the grandparents had to take care of my kids. I found myself in the home office of a shrink who said, on Fridays, I give spankings for free. <laughs> That was one of his better moments. Um, <laughs> my new meds made me queasy and dizzy and dried out my eyes. Instead of four hours sleep, I got two. The next pills I tried ca caused hyperventilation. There was talk of hospitalization. But I made it through. I made it through. 
And through it all, I talk to you. You helped me out of bed. I don't remember what you said. Thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Um, thank you for that. Uh, next up, we have one of the instructors who I've always felt um, we're getting away with something. How long is this going to last? And in fact, he just got hired by a very smart university to head up their MFA program, Western State. Um, they're brilliant. They caught on to what we've known for a long time, which is David Rothman is a brilliant guy, and he knows how to make people excited about this thing we're doing here that Jenny just did. Um, so I'm going to introduce David Rothman. I always thought they called it the draft because it was an old building, you know. And, but. So uh, prose writers know that uh, outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. What poets know is that inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. But uh, <laughs> Jay Kenny, whom I'm introducing, is, is a poet, and he knows that. And uh, I can tell he's a poet because when we're in these classes... Uh, he's written prose as well, but when we're in classes talking about, about verse craft, he gets this furrowed look on his brow, and he gets it. That's why they talk about poets and writers, because poets are, are different. They compose, and Jay has quite a gift for this, um, and as a result, we're, we're all hoping that he gets more involved with Lighthouse, because he's new, and um, you know he hasn't, really, he hasn't really stepped up yet, but we know that he will soon, and... Uh, he was a few years ahead of me at college at the same school, so I at a Cambridge Technical Methodist Community College. So we never we never actually met, but I know that he studied uh, with one of my great teachers as well, uh, named Robert Fitzgerald, who was a professor of classics, and and Jay was a classics major, and his gifts are extraordinary, and they shine through in uh, the things that he hands in, and we talk about them as if they're exercises, but indeed they're they're much more than that because he really does know how to compose uh, with language. And um, he, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have him in those classes. And uh, I think Lighthouse is very fortunate to have him involved. And it's an honor to introduce him. Jay Kenny. I'm going to read you the Johnson County Cattle War, 1892. And the background on this is that in the 19th century, late 19th century in Wyoming, which is where Johnson County is, there was a range war between uh, eastern-backed cattlemen and small homesteaders. I sing the song of Nate and Nick, just lads like you who settled here to turn the soil, to raise some calves and put down roots for good. Yet now they're dead across the creek, shot down like dogs by Canton's crew. The birds will peck their eyeballs out. 
the snow will melt their flesh. Wolves will come and gnaw their pale white bones. Above the ranch, the hills turn green, but Nate and Nick will never see another spring. We came by horse, by foot, by train, and had a dream of land where we could settle down. We found a place overrun by cows and ruled by men from out of state who tried to drive us off the land. It's open range, but not so clear that they think so where we're concerned. The Homestead Act we thought would help. It gave the right to own the land, to work it hard, to grow some hay and breed some cows, and soon would own a spread. But deeds do not where laws are weak and rough men rule behind the scenes. In 84, my parents passed. I rode from Texas with a crew, a kid who'd found a life outside. I learned to rope and drive the cows, to ford the creeks and tend the strays, to calm the herd when danger roamed, a wolf, a storm, or loco weed. The crew and I, we always knew, would have to find some work to do when once the herd was on the train. We drank our way from bar to bar and lost our pay at games of chance and saw the girls, the soiled doves, their painted lips and perfumed hips, but not for boys like us, the price too steep. Without a job, we drifted north. We'd heard of land near Buffalo where men could put down roots and build a spread that they could own. In 86, we looked for work and stopped at all the nearby spreads. The Triple T, the 7-6, the Casey Ranch, the Hatton Hoe, the Pitchfork, too. We found some work at Casey Ranch just south of town. A bunk with grub was all I got, a place to ride a few years out, to figure out a place to land and how the waters flowed, to find which parts were rich in soil and not yet claimed. We watched the herd for days on end. We trailed a wagon with a cook and slept at night around a fire to keep us warm. The stars above so bright with hope, I could forget that I was but a boy alone. The cold of winter came too soon that year. The wind came in from Canada, brought snow so deep we dragged our feet while looking for the strays. The men who'd been around this land a while all said they'd seen no winter such as this. With ice in all the creeks so thick, a cow could not break through to quench her thirst. With cold so harsh, it froze our snot and tore our skin as with a knife when gutting out an elk or moose brought down for meat to help get through another year. A few survived those frigid months, but many calves that spring were small and hit by scours never grew, and no one ever knew how many died. That fall, we rounded up the herd and shipped the calves to Omaha and culled the weak and sickly cows to keep the line as strong as it could be. The barons now could feel the chill. Their banks had called and canceled loans. The foreman got the word to let us go, to shrink the herd and leave us to our own device as if we'd just go run away and leave this land we'd come to love, a land so rich it stopped your breath, a land so harsh it broke your back, a place so hard it cracked your heart, but still a place I called my home. They paid me off and wished me well, but warned me not to hang around. No room for folks who build their homes and fence our land. We need that space to raise our herd. Get lost. Head out. Don't look back. 
We rode to town, my horse and I, to get the food and tools I'd need. I saw some men, a crowd of them, let go like me, adrift that year, as, or- as orphaned calves go cow to cow, try to suck or kicked away, Montana Bill, Chicago Kid, Itchy Jake, and Windy Bob, Cyclone Ed, and Lazy Dick, Beaver Slide, and One-Eyed Earl, came into town to have a drink and then move on. I talked to Nate. He'd been laid off, but planned to find a place to buy with Nick, his friend, a pal he'd partnered with. He'd partnered with. He said to me, I want to stay. I love this land. I'll sink some roots and start a herd. I'll raise some hay. I'll find a girl to marry me. We'll ride down south to KC Town and look for land to settle on. Some grass, a creek that flows all year around, some pines with which to build corrals, a house, a shed. That's all we need. They found a spread and settled in. They dug a well and fenced their land and built a shack, quite small and plain, a stove, four rooms and all. A herd they built with cows and calves and paid in sweat and greenbacks earned. They're honest men and never stole a cow, no matter what, the barons claim. They bought a few and found some strays, no brands to say whose calves they were. Their herd grew fat along the creek and grass so thick that come the fall they sold the lot. In 92, before the hard snows came, Nate went to town and filed the forms he'd heard about. The Homestead Act was still the law. The cattle barons hated it and swore the time had come to set the country right. They hatched a plot and wrote a list of men they said were thieves who stole their cows and changed the brands and took what wasn't theirs. The first names on the list were those of Nate and Nick. The cattle barons found some men who do their dirty work and gave them them guns, a map, and sent them on their way. The men packed up. They oiled their guns and rode into the night. They found my friends inside their shack asleep in bed at 4 a.m., but Nate was quick and drew his gun while still in bed and shot with care, though bullets raced, though bullets flew around his head. He got shot one, a gruesome death, and winged his pal, a scurvy lad, their faces he could see. The baron's men ran north to town with Nate in hot pursuit. He swore a bill to take one in, the one he'd shot up close. The marshal said he'd go to jail if Nate would testify and promised to return in May to tell at at trial the truth of it, of how the men had tried to gun him down. When Nate stood up before the judge and looked them in the eye, the barons knew that they'd be next if Nate were left alive. They said, a man will go to jail, it's true, but not to save his boss. And none will hang when all it takes to put us in the dock or names. The who and why and how of it, and who said what and when, a trial was set for May. That year, the barons tried to spring their man from jail to keep him on their side. But when that failed, they found a bull who knew the land, who said he'd kill both Nate and Nick if they'd provide the guns, the men, and cover up all evidence of how he'd done the deed. Rough men arrived by train and horse. They rode straight through the night, arrived in time to set a trap and circle around the ranch, 
They snuck up close and settled in to blend in with the land the way it's hard to see a wolf that skulks across the plains who comes to stalk the baby calves when they have just been born. The sun came up behind their backs and hid their hiding place. Then someone threw a stone. It struck the door, and Nick jumped up, looked out. To see the baron's men, they shot him dead. Nate grabbed his guns. He fired back. He held the men at bay and scribbled in a note he kept throughout that long, cold day. I am alone and tired, too, and wish it were not so. If friends were here, would hold them off. I see they're cutting trees. I fear they'll burn and smoke me out before the day is through. I thought I'd make it to the night and ride back into town, but now my house is burning up. I have to make a break. Goodbye, my friends. Remember me and put me in the ground along the creek I know so well beneath the cottonwoods and dig me deep to six feet down so dogs can't gnaw my bones. A stone across are all I need once I am in the ground. With that, he ran his gun in hand into the gloom and dusk. He went out back and ran for it. He hoped he'd have a chance. Four men jumped up and fired away and dropped into the ground. They left him there for dogs to eat, a sign around his neck to scare away his friends. Let cattle thieves beware. I sing the song of Nate and Nick, just lads like you who settled here to turn the soil to raise some calves and put down roots for good. Yet now they're dead across a creek, shot down like dogs by Canton's crew. The birds will peck their eyeballs out. The snow will melt their flesh. Wolves will come and gnaw their pale white bones. Above the ranch, the hills turn green, but Nate and Nick will never see another spring. The men you fight are rich and fat. They call you thieves and squatters too. You're crooks who steal their calves and fence the land they say is theirs. No matter what they tell their friends, nor what the papers print, we know the truth. It's written blood and not in printer's ink. The truth will out. We will prevail in this land or the next. We'll keep our herd and raise some hay along the narrow creek. And those who try to scare us off will dangle from a noose. You know, I was four years an English major, and I finally get iambic pentameter. (laughs) That was amazing. Thank you for that. Um, Those of us who aren't poets appreciate the handrails of narrative that you gave us. That was beautiful. And even though it ended with someone hanging from a noose, I still feel buoyed by that somehow. Um, Amazing. Thank you. So (laughs) the next instructor is seems to have this intimidating effect on other instructors. And I won't name names, but somebody emailed me and said, I just feel like I can't keep up with Victoria Hanley. I just can't. And and she's amazing. She's like a superhero. And she drives these distances and somehow manages to make it to Lighthouse to run these amazing workshops 
we're really thrilled to have her as part of our faculty. She she knows how to write young adult fiction, and she knows how to teach it. Ms. Victoria Henley. I'm always happy to follow you because you're short. (laughs) So I am introducing Mary Foley. And on the first night of class, you know how it goes. People introduce themselves, talk about what they're doing, why they're doing it, who they are, and what they're working on. And Mary said... I'm Mary Foley, and I'm an attorney, and I have three children under seven, and I'm writing a zombie novel. (laughs) And I don't actually know what my external expression was. I know I did my best to look neutral, but on the inside, I was looking like this. And so I had myself a nice little pity party, and then I started reading her pages, and my pity party turned into a fan party, because she's got this wonderful ability to fuse action and character. And it's not just me, she's got the rest of the class are fans, too. And um, so I also found out this week that Mary and I have something in common that I didn't know about, which is that... For the first, how many years for you? Three years uh, for her, five years for me. We didn't tell anybody that we were writing the books we were writing. And at the time that I was writing my YA fantasy, I was teaching anatomy. And um, uh, while she was writing her zombie novel, she wasn't telling anybody about it, and neither was I. And I didn't, in fact, tell anyone until it was time to invite people to the book signing, and they all assumed it was a book on physiology. So So I need to catch you up a little bit on the story because she's going to read a chapter kind of midstream in the novel. So I'll just be real brief. Um, Chloe, who is our 16-year-old protagonist, lives in a post-zombie apocalyptic world. By the way, Mary doesn't call them zombies. She calls them debtors or things. So if you're waiting for the word zombie, you won't hear it, except for me. Uh, She lives in this post-zombie apocalyptic world, and her father uh, drills his kids daily on how to deal with debtors, how to kill them, how to uh, not be bitten by them. And, of course, he is just trying to protect and prepare his children. However, he comes off very unfeeling. And on the day um, that this scene occurs, uh, he has assigned Chloe a punishment to run the electric fence perimeter that surrounds their homestead, only this time she is to take her five-year-old brother with her. And Chloe knows that this will slow her down quite a bit and that if she doesn't complete it, she won't get to go to a very rare social function involving boys. (laughs) So she tells her brother to wait in the solar panels. There hasn't been a debtor attack for years. And she starts running the fence alone. And that's when the debtor attack occurs and her brother is bitten. And she has to 
perform the drills on her living brother that she had practiced on straw men. And also, the debtors that attack uh, are her own best friend and her best friend's father, so she is forced to kill her best friend. Um, so as you can see, she knows how to heap hazards on their heads. And um, that's where we pick up. She has signaled that she's in trouble, and she's waiting for her family. Mary Foley. I'm going to interrupt the story real quick and just say um, Victoria is a superstar. I don't know, as writers, you find someone who's able to tell you the hard stuff in the right way so that you can keep going and make it better every time you sit down to write. Oh, you can't hear? Okay. So, I started. Did you hear, Victoria, what I said? Did you? Okay, good. All right. <laughs> when I was 10, I sheared the tip of my finger off with a carving knife. The knife was sharp, so it sliced it clean. It took a moment, a quiet moment, watching the blood flood across the cutting board before the pain kicked in, before I realized what had happened. The pain was blind, mind-numbing, not a dull ache, but sharp, quick, and searing up my arm into my chest. I clamped a hand around the wound, started running, jumping, moving, anything to get away from the pain. Dad didn't let that go on for long. He threw me in a corner, told me to sit. When I was calm, I would bind it myself. Mom stood in the doorway, wringing a clean rag in her hands, while I alternated hyperventilating and holding my breath in turn. Dad talked slowly the whole time I sat there. Sit when you need to sit. Move when you need to move. Breathe when you need to breathe. Never run without purpose. Always have a plan. Never get distracted. Never let your guard down. Now I slow the rattle in my chest. Pull the gun up so I can fire it if I need to. I stand. I'd like to think Dad would be pleased. I sat there looking at Jane's dead body for less time than I sat on the floor in the kitchen. But I can't help but feel how disappointed he'll be that I had to sit at all. Alex cries in my direction, seeming to plead through the gag. It sounds as if he's trying to call me by name. How does he know I'm still here? Why can he still say my name? The sun beats down on my head. Sweat drips behind my braid, trails down my back between my shoulder blades to rest in the waistband of my pants. I spin, convinced there is something behind me. How long has it been since I fired the shotgun? Where is Dad? Mom. I need them, and they're not here. Then finally I hear something, the jeep trolling along the fence, the snap and pop as someone throws a rock to confirm the electricity is on. I exhale tension, my muscles going weak with relief. But then I'm enraged. They're in the jeep using precious fuel and they couldn't have gotten here sooner. They couldn't have come straight here for Alex, for me. If they'd been here, maybe I wouldn't have had to kill Jane. What have they been doing? Always cover your flank. Secure your base before you engage. Dad's voice echoes in my head. They would have secured the house first, put Sean and the other kids in the safe room. But I am still angry. Mom is driving. Dad's braced against the roll bar. His shotgun slowly sweeps the horizon. Magpie's throwing rocks at the fence. Suddenly, all I want is for Mom to tell me everything will be okay. Dad never tells me that. Daddy, I whisper. I haven't called him that in years. I run toward them, but slow down as Dad's gun stops its sweep and trains itself on me. 
He's not supposed to do that. We're never supposed to draw down on a human. Never. Magpie drops the rock in her hand and lifts her gun to her narrow shoulder so it's pointed at my chest. I start crying again. Mom's knuckles are white on the steering wheel. The jeep winds to a stop. Daddy? This time it's a whimper. Show us you're not one of them. Show us it's still you. How could I have forgotten this with Jane? How could I have forgotten protocol? My name is Chloe Thorpe. I'm 16 years old. My parents are John and Anna Thorpe. I have seven brothers and sisters, Magpie, Sean, Jamie. And then Mom is sprinting toward me. She nearly knocks me down. She hits me so hard. Her fingers wipe blood from my face, turning me from side to side. Are you hurt, honey? Did you get bit? She lifts my shirt, tucking my torso. No, ma'am. I fight with her to keep my shirt down. None of it's mine, but Alex. She shushes and continues checking me, practically ripping my clothes off, looking for injury. Magpie covers Dad while he walks over to Alex, two feet back and to the side, just like he taught us. Dad crouches next to Alex and asks Mom, Is she clear? There is no emotion on his face. It's, not easy, it's like he's not even looking at Alex. Yes. Mom wipes my face with a towel she's pulled from a kit at her feet. Mom and Dad swap spots. He motions for Magpie to stay with Mom, and his eyes barely skim over me as he advances to the fence. Explain. The, f- the fence is down. His head ticks forward sharply. It's surged. I don't know why I can't just say it all at once instead of feeding it to him in bits and pieces. He looks at me. He's irritated. There's a thing on it. A debtor. He turns his head around and looks back down the fence. The muscle in his jaw tightens. I see it. Of course he does. Now that I know it's there, it's the only thing I can see. The dark, thin body crumpled against the fence. Dad strides quickly over to it, and I see him take it all in at once. The debtor on the fence. The bent wires at the top. He turns and scans the corn behind us. He shakes his head and curses. Chloe, if you were outside the fence and you needed to get in, what would you do? Turn the, turn the power off and open the gate. Gate's not an option and you don't have access to the power, he says harshly. I look at the thing behind me and realization dawns. I'd short the power and climb the fence. He nods once, then his boot thunders against the chain link. The debtor collapses against the ground with an empty thud. He strides back the way we came, flings open the junction box and resets the fuse. The fence whirs back to life. Sparks pop and fly where the debtor was, the last of the flesh burning away. Dad, you said they can't climb, they can't think, they can't plan. They couldn't. I don't miss the past tense. He's walking back toward Alex. I stumble after him, looking at the collapsed barbed wire. You said that's what we have, that's what we do better, we can think. I'm desperate for him to tell me we still have the advantage, but he says nothing. Mom is kneeling next to Alex, her normally rigid spine slumped. Alex looks like he's sleeping. One of the tiny glass bottles Mom keeps high in the kitchen cupboard, just for a moment like this, lies in the dirt next to him. An empty syringe sits next to it, its plunger pushed all the way in. I had to use all of it. Dad squeezes her shoulder. He's so small. Her voice is small, too. Dad lifts Alex and carries him to the jeep. The angry snarl that changed Alex's face into a hideous mask is gone. He looks like my brother again, unless you look at his slack mouth, which falls open around the gag to reveal the black corruption and the tips of dagger-like teeth. Dad sets him down on the floor of the jeep and double-checks the bindings on his hands and feet. Then he pulls a fuel canister over the metal side of the jeep and sets it in the road. 
Magpie and Mom leave with Alex, turning the Jeep in a tight U-turn that fills the still air with dust. I look at the bodies of what used to be my friend and her father in the road. What happened? Dad's voice is hard, and I know that this time he is asking about Alex, how Alex was bitten. I don't want to answer him. I don't want to tell him I left Alex, because if I hadn't left Alex, he wouldn't have been bitten, and I don't really know what Dad'll do when he hears about it. But his jaw tightens and the muscle ticks up toward his ear, and I have to say something. The debtor was slow at first, but then it was fast, and I couldn't get to him in time. What do you mean you couldn't get to him in time? He says the word slowly, and his right hand is clenched in a fist so tight his knuckles blanch white. You said they couldn't climb! I shout the words at him, wanting to blame anyone but myself. He doesn't answer. Bugs click in the grass. The solar panels creak. When he finally speaks, the woods are quiet. Words are quiet. You left him. You said they couldn't climb. My words sound broken, and I'm repeating myself, but there is nothing else I can say. Why do we check the fences every day? His voice is calm, like he's asking me the question on an ordinary day, and somehow this makes it a thousand times worse. I don't answer. I don't want to answer. Alex is bitten. Dad will kill him in three days if he isn't immune. Tears leak out the side of my eyes, and I angrily scrub them away. Why? he shouts. A flinch is my only response. Dad closes the distance between us, so he's standing right in front of me. If Alex isn't immune, you will take care of it. No, I say. He wants me to kill Alex, like he killed my brother John. I remember the way Mom's body jerked when the rifle sounded and the smell of the fire that burned almost all day when they torched John's body. I meet Dad's eyes, and his even stare burns into me. Then he says, You said it was slow, and then it was fast. Explain. Why is he so calm? I wish he would scream and yell and maybe hit me so I could erupt in fury. Explain. His clipped order draws my eyes back to Mr. Casey's dead body. I speak hesitantly at first. The first one, I thought it was in the third stage, you know, dead but reanimated. It was slow and its body looked wrong, but then Alex tripped and it was fast. It was so fast. That's when I realized it was still alive, just infected. When I shot it, it didn't even flinch until I got closer and shot it again, and that's when I realized it was Mr. Casey. He just kept coming until finally I blew his head off. Then Jane came, and I wanted to save her because she was talking, talking. But she came at me, and I shot her in the head by accident. The last of the words tumble out of me in a hysterical gush, and when I finally look at Dad, he is staring at Mr. Casey's mangled body in the road, and the color in his face is drained. He flips the body and lifts the shirt up. On one side of the fleshy back, there are four punctures in an arc, with a fifth underneath the others toward the center. On the other side are four long, gash-like scars that trail from the front of the ribcage onto the back. Between these two sets of scars is a circle with irregular edges, an old bite wound scarred over. Dad's finger brushes across the top of this scar. Ray got that four months after the change. He sounds distant, like he's not with me anymore. He always sounds like this when he talks about the change. Ray was on one of the final transports out of the Middle East, coming home to fix our problems here, finally leave the rest of the world to take care of themselves. His unit was bunked down in what was supposed to be a safe area. No one knows exactly how long the debtor had been there, but they missed it when they did the sweep. It didn't smell because its body hadn't died. 
It bit Ray and mauled him, but it didn't kill him. Dad pulls Ray's shirt back down. Military patched him up, stuck him in a holding cell, and watched him rave for three days. One morning, he woke up and asked for water. He was one of the first documented immunes. He looks at me for a moment, like he's trying to decide something. I've heard all this before, but this time it's like there's something more to the story. Dad whips up Ray's pant leg and pulls back the top of his boot. There on his calf is another scar. It isn't as deep, and the flesh hasn't been torn away, but there are distinct teeth marks. This is where the army let an infected soldier bite him again to see if the immunity held. Ray developed a fever, but was otherwise lucid. Immunes couldn't be reinfected. Even when killed by a debtor, they're supposed to just die, and we bury them like human beings. Wait, the army let an infected soldier bite him again? He drops Mr. Casey's pant leg and looks up at me. Leave it, Chloe. They did what they had to do. I can't believe this. That's crazy. Why would the army do that? The army's supposed to protect us, keep us safe. Why would they risk infecting someone who had survived an attack? Dad walks over to Jane's body. He grabs her feet and drags her next to her father. Then he strips the boots off both of them and empties their pockets. I want to stop him, but nothing goes to waste here. He picks up the metal jug he took out of the jeep. The fuel inside sloshes from side to side before he dumps gasoline over the two bodies. I step back to avoid being splashed. The strong fumes burn my eyes. He walks a few feet away from the body, so we are facing each other. What are we going to do now, I ask, because everything's changed. Debtors can think, climb, pretend to be dead, even speak. And the immunity that got my parents a ticket out of the city, the immunity that's supposed to give us a fighting chance out here, may be gone. Dad strikes a match and flings it on the bodies. The flames flare up beside us as he says, I don't know. You know, every time Victoria has a new class section open up on our website it fills up like this and then there are like 10 on the wait list within a day now i get it you guys have these addictive stories and somehow you're bringing this out of them because i always counted on debtors not being able to think either like i thought that was my advantage that's amazing how much work do you have to do on the world of it a lot a lot of work yeah I'll stick with realism. Um, thank you for that. The next and final reader um, is somebody I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with in the past. The person who drafted her is Richard Froud, who has an awesome accent. And sometimes when I'm reading to my kids like Harry Potter or something, I do too. But I'm going to spare you. Um, And here's the intro he sent. Um, Susanna Donato has been coming to Lighthouse for many years. Currently, she's in the hybrid and experimental forms class in which she has been working on new approaches to difficult sections of her book-length memoir, a coming-of-age story set in Denver and New York City through the 80s and 90s, which she is completing as part of Lighthouse's book project. Susanna herself has referred to the book as, quote, writing about boys and music. But while these themes run through the book for sure, there is much more to this. 
Among the humor and impeccably observed cultural details, Susanna handles heavier topics with skill and style. Frustration, alienation, and depression within strained social, racial, and family dynamics are approached in scenes that are both deeply felt and lucidly grounded. Her prose works hard. By that I mean it brings us into these situations to the streets of Capitol Hill, the punk clubs of Lower Manhattan, the islands of familiar discord familial discord in suburban homes and gardens, and these observations find themselves punctuated when necessary by poetic turns of phrase, used with an economy that does not give in to nostalgia, but places the work in a past that feels immediate, only just out of reach to the adults we have become. It is my pleasure to introduce from afar, Susanna Donato. Thank you. Let's see. I guess I'm a little, not so short. Um, thank you, Andrea, for standing in for Richard, and that was that was a very generous introduction. So, um, so this this is a passage from my book length memoir, which is um, right now called "The Only Girl in the Record Store," and we're jumping in about chapter seven, but I, hopefully it'll make sense. So, I'm taking you back to 1987, and uh, so it's back to being 15 years old. And this chapter is called Black on the Inside. I'm on the phone with Gary checking the bus schedule. Saturday travel, eastbound. Gary is saying he'll get on at Ward Road at 10.15 tomorrow. Do you see your stop? I'll get on at Independence, 10.25. We'll be downtown an hour later. We can walk from there. Don't be a dipshit and miss the bus tomorrow, Gary says. You don't be a dipshit, I say. On the bus, I'm missing teletunes, but it's okay because I record it every Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to noon, alternating between two VHS tapes. After church, if the Broncos aren't playing, I can make a bowl of popcorn and do homework or spread newspaper on the floor and paint my nails while I watch. Sometimes Dad stops for a minute in his undershirt and jeans to watch Grace Jones or raise an eyebrow at Nina Hagen. He kind of likes Kate Bush. He rolls his eyes at the cute British boys Echo and the Bunnymen or the Blow Monkeys. He juts out a hip and fluffs a pretend hairdo and lisps in a fake English accent, Me, oh my, what bloke can resist borrowing a bird's lipstick, eh, governor? <laughs> I stare straight ahead until he goes downstairs, supposedly to work on his youth sermon, but really to play Zork on his Commodore computer. <laughs> Mom stops to steal popcorn and remarks, Somebody found a bulk rate on prison jumpsuits. I hold perfectly still until she takes her iced tea and goes to read a magazine on the back patio. When the vinyl chase lounge cushion wheezes under her weight, I relax and let my legs twitch. At Musicland last year, I found the Smiths louder than bombs, although the mall isolates new wave and post-punk in hidden veins among alphabetized top 40 stacks. Wax Tracks is different, Gary says. In the wan sun of a fall Saturday in Capitol Hill, 11 a.m., stragglers walk dogs, leashes in one hand, cigarettes in crabbed fingers. I've been downtown with my youth group, and I'm alert for garbage, drugs, alleys decked with scary graffiti. But today on 13th Avenue, I smell Gary's polo cologne and feel the warmth of his bare arm in rhythm with his funny bouncing stride. You can buy posters and stuff here, he says, as we pass across the tracks. The used store is across the street, but he's guiding me to wax. He just calls it wax. In my mind, I sample the shorthand. 
Above the door, a yellow sign bolted to the brick says, Wax Tracks Records. The door swishes across scrubby tile, and a brass bell jingles from the hinge. Clerks in peg-leg jeans and Joy Division or Dead Boys t-shirts don't even glance our way. A boy in a black sweatshirt and an older man in a V-neck sweater flip through albums in homemade black bins with plastic dividers and handwritten labels. Light filters through multicolored flyers stuck to the tall windows, and fluorescents hum beneath the black ceiling muffled in band posters. The filthy carpeting, a narrow zigzag pattern in purple and brown and gold, has long since been defeated. I breathe dust with a top note of chrome from the columns of cassettes behind locking plexiglass doors lining every wall at eye level like another row of windows. After the long journey, I have to pee. I find the toilet in a broom closet and fasten the rather cavalier latch. I squat, clutching my pants for quick cover should the door burst open. (laughs) While my used tissue still swirls sluggishly in the commode, I slink back into the store, half afraid the mohawked 20-year-old staring at a stack of tapes labeled punk could have seen through the door. Afterward, at Across the Tracks, we debate which Cure t-shirt is the best, but all I buy is a button for my army green gap bag that says, join the army, travel to exotic distant lands, meet exciting unusual people, and kill them. (laughs) We, We walk fast back along 13th and then run on Broadway so we don't miss our bus. The bus reeks of exhaust and I worry I'll need a bathroom again as we lurch up 15th. On the frontage road to the suburbs, we pass metal siding houses and the dew drop in. The strangers on the bus aren't cool enough to impress, so we try to relax, even though Gary frets he'll be late for fancy dinner with his family. I unroll the sweaty edge of my flat brown paper bag. I bought a Nitzareb 12-inch and The Cure. He bought New Order. We're going to trade the tapes and dub them. That's fair, but it isn't quite thanks. I'm tongue-tied from Gary's nearness and the way my head swims with gratitude. All the bands from Teletoons, there for the taking. All I need is money and the secret code, the clothes and the bus route. I pull the wire for my stop. Gary swings his legs into the aisle so I can pass. See you later, ugly, he says. You're ugly, I say automatically. See you at school. Don't forget the tape. Gary and I met in class, pretending not to look at each other during an art slideshow. One of the pieces, Sculpture for the Blind, was designed so vision-impaired people could see the work by feel. The next week, Gary made a block of foam prickling with a hundred needles. He called it Sculpture for the Cautious Blind. (laughs) Now, during free period, we share his fancy Walkman headphones. We pass notes with cartoons about our classmates. We make each other laugh with archetypal intensity. So hard our stomachs hurt. So hard we almost pee our pants. So hard we spray Funyuns onto the table. (laughs) After his friend Shauna tells me I look good in black, I give up my Madras camp shirt to Goodwill. I walk farther up 13th Avenue to fashion disaster and stock up on black jersey harem pants. (laughs) Gary and I start taking the bus to wax every few weeks. I have a crush on Gary, but that's trouble because he's kind of my best friend, and I'm used to boys not working out, so it doesn't take long for a particular wax track clerk to catch my eye. He's a cross between Martin Gore from Depeche Mode with his bleached blonde curly hair and Justin Sullivan from New Model Army, who's also missing a front tooth. I ask him about a song I heard on Teletoons. The video is black and white. The band name is an exclamation mark. We go back and forth. Is it written out? No, just the symbol. There isn't a punctuation bin at the store. The song goes, goes, emulsify me, emulsify me, emulsifier. Finally, he shakes his head. His thrift store cardigan shrugs off one shoulder. He's wearing creepers with woven white uppers. I only buy the new Smith's record, Strangeways, Here We Come. He hands me the plain paper bag and says, please come again. 
When I find a big airmail envelope from Scotland on the plush carpet beneath the mail slot, I take it straight to my room. My pen pal, Anne, has marked a page of the latest issue of Smash Hits with a post-it that says, Why? (laughs) The Smiths have broken up. I'm glad I closed my door because I cry so hard I have to lie down. (laughs) The Smiths were the one thing that makes you feel at home when you start suspecting your home is nowhere. With mom's good Fisker's shears, I cut a rectangle from a piece of cloth and wear the black armband to school all week. (laughs) I think Gary respects my activism. (laughs) At my locker, I tape up the magazine photo of Morrissey and Johnny Marr separated by a jagged split. (laughs) I want to kiss it like a mezuzah when I open the door, but I don't want to offend any actual Jews, so I just do it in my mind. (laughs) I don't tell Gary this. I was religious as a kid. Now, during services, looking from the choir loft down at Dad's heart-shaped bald spot, I pass time by tallying the senior pastor's quotations in my bulletin. He averages 22, one for every minute of the sermon, which is timed so the radio station can fit in commercials. Every Sunday morning, I worry into panic in the mirror on my closet door, trying to find an outfit that leaves Mom without comment. If I look like myself, she says she doesn't know why kids don't show some respect to God. If she says I look nice, I know I don't look like myself. I'm never pretty. By the time the youth choir sings the recessional, I've buried this worry with other secret layers of worry, and I'm calmer. My passion for wax tracks grows as fast as acid-washed denim spreads among the preps. In a cave of tapes at the back of the store, the E section, I'm looking for an industrial band from a video in German class when I hear, country music in wax tracks? I turn to check the playing now sheet by the counter. My eyes don't make it that far because the cute clerk is watching. When he laughs at my astonishment, his hand floats up to conceal his missing tooth. I whip back around. My freckles must be awful in my hot face. Then the music changes. The Smith. Strange Ways, the last record I bought. I can't help it. I look back. He smiles. I am so shy, I ask a different clerk to unlock the cassette case for the tape I want. The cute clerk is busy with someone else while I pay for the Einstrutz and Neubauten. I will worry over the lyrics sheet for weeks with a magnifying glass and my German dictionary. (laughs) I'll worry just as long about whether I looked like an ass at wax tracks, but shame does not dissuade me from returning. I can't let it because finding and loving new music is where my mind can rest as the year goes on and Gary drinks with other friends and vomits in his parents' car when someone is driving him home. And I don't want to drink, but neither do I want to keep living in my restless mind. The bell jingles us into wax tracks and we can breathe again. It smells like everywhere we are at home, like mildew and piss and stale cigarette smoke and aquanet, the aroma of new wave angst. (laughs) The cute clerk says hi to me. Gary marches off. The clerk slides a tape across the counter. It's Morrissey's new solo album, Viva Hate. He says, I didn't know if it might sell out. I say, thank you. The cute clerk is looking in my eyes. I say, thank you again, staring at the tape in my hand, and I buy it instead of whatever I've forgotten I came for. The cute clerk is so cute that it never occurs to me that I could take this flirtation beyond blushing and fantasizing about lewd acts behind the counter. (laughs) By spring, it's been a million years since the day I bought Sinead O'Connor's album, maybe on my second trip to Wax Tracks, and on the bus ride home, Gary and I shared the headphones, each of us with one earbud, Sinead's glorious, lonely voice, Gary's hazel eyes in the sun. I couldn't stop myself. I told him his eyes were a beautiful color. He shuddered and scooted toward the window. (laughs) I didn't know then that Gary was gay. I never officially know that whole year. I don't know if he knows or what he's doing about it. 
If he told anyone, it might have been me, but it's not. All I sense is his not wanting me. It's a little different than other boys not wanting me, but still the same thing. I can't see the cute clerk's real gift until later. Something in me wants to die, but week after week, I resuscitate it at Wax Tracks. Thanks. That was incredible. And why did they have to break up? I mean... That was amazing. Thank you. And thanks to all the readers. Let's give them one more round. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.